Welcome to Pace and Practice, an Eden Project podcast focused on Christian spiritual formation in which we desire to help people become people of love who walk at the pace of love. Well, welcome. I'm Chuck Gershwin. I am the Director of Culture and Spiritual Formation at the Eden Project. And today we are launching our sixth, a brand new podcast called Pace and Practice. And it is a Christian spiritual formation podcast uh, where we really desire to help people become people of love who then can walk at the pace of love. Mm. So today we're going to talk about discipleship. Or are we going to talk about spiritual formation? <laughs> is one better than the other? Are they different? Are they the same? That's what we're going to talk about. Nice. But before we talk about that, I got my good buddy, Nathan Wagner yeah, on here. I'm here with you, bro. In studio, co-founder. I'm, I'm tracking with you. Of the Eden Project. Yeah. Now, this is our sixth podcast it channel. Is, yeah. Tell us about yeah. the first five. Yeah. I mean, if you've been tracking with us, uh, the, the resources that we're creating here on Eden Project, then you know about the glossary where we define terms for people so that we, when we have a conversation, we can know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, should not assume that we're think, talking about the same thing. Uh, we also have the a bigger story of a greater love, which is more of our uh, biblical meta narrative where we have a lot of theologians on to just talk about how the scriptures flow and who God is in the midst of all of that. Um, we've got the Eden verse, which is one of my favorites that puts uh, the biblical narrative into its original context so we can see the beauty of the love of God in places that most people would not expect to find it. But it's there, I promise. Um, We also have God in the brain, which is uh, a lot of the stuff that I worked on for my doctoral work around psychoanalysis, neurobiology, attachment theory, stuff like that, where we discuss how spiritual formation, you know, fits into all those fields. It's really integrative type work. And then our boy Duke, co-founder, um, runs the Ever Present podcast, which I know a lot of y'all have listened to. Uh, really, a, a podcast on biblical anthropology and a theology of emotion, which is really critical. And then we got Chuck Gishwind. I mean, bringing it, bringing it strong with pace and practice. So you guys, I mean, all those are available on any of the uh, podcast platforms out there. And so, yeah. Please check it out. That's all there for you guys. So as we launch this patient practice podcast today, it's we're our- we're we're starting. We're let's just say like we're starting kind of like with, with like you know if you, if you have a starting lineup and then you've got like your second or your third and then you've got the guy that's like on the on the practice squad. This this guy's more like on the practice squad, right? Yeah. Is that yeah? Is that more like yeah? We love underdogs. Right? Uh, he's the underdog. Yeah. Right. But yeah. not not very many people know who he is or have that's read right. any of his that's stuff. Right. But yeah. I mean, we'll you know we'll. We'll try to serve it up for him. Yeah. So who do we got? We have John Mark Comer. <laughs> Welcome, minute, John Mark. John Mark Comer. You've heard of him? <laughs> yeah. I thought we were dealing with like reserve guys. This yeah. is uh, a... Yeah, no, man. We got John Mark Comer, we, man. I quit school because of recess, bro. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, John Mark is the founder of Practicing the Way. I love it. Uh, I love the way they state it. An organization dedicated to creating beautiful resources and experiences for spiritual formation that serve churches and train people to practice the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's an mm-hmm. author, a lot of books, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, among many others, and just released mm. Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, and Do As He Did. So, audience, you probably already trust John Mark Comer, and I 
only on this Google, I mean, this uh, Zoom call as part of this podcast 30 minutes ago. Met John Mark for the first time, but I want to commend him to you as a trustworthy dude because I've had the immense privilege last two years to get to know Tammy, his wife. Mm-hmm. And here's what Tammy would say about her husband. One, she, of course, says he's brilliant. <laughs> I think everybody may agree with that, except maybe John Mark. But anyway, but uh, when Tammy lights up talking about John Mark, it's about how great a daddy is and how great a husband he is. So, John Mark, commend you to our audience, and way to go, bro. Yeah. Your wife, Tammy, loves you, respects you, and uh, not that we can get into the details, I think you and I uh, share a lot of things in common. We share an Enneagram number in common. So it's actually, I've been praying for you from afar because I kind of have a side ministry for everybody that shares our, <laughs> your, our Enneagram your number. We're not going to get in that today. But anyway. Psychosis <laughs> is a synonym there for our Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. So um, one <laughs> on that level, I just uh, I get you uh, from afar. So welcome, thanks for spending a few minutes with us today. Well, thanks, Chuck. You know, I'm from the West Coast, and uh, we have a very low emotional resilience as a general population. So we do these things called trigger warnings. And <laughs> as the kid that was a horrific athlete as a child, <laughs> not not even horrific athlete, just non athlete, yeah. just could barely walk across the parking lot without <laughs> tripping over my feet. Um, your your allusion to the underdog, man, I just feel like I'm in trauma mode now. I'm in flight or flight. I, okay. I can't. You've lost me. Okay. We're, we're just, well, well, I, I did not realize and we, we haven't even started I yet. Know, right? <laughs> that was we my gonna... childhood. You just touched my deepest <laughs> okay. Maybe this will turn into a therapy session. Very vivid memories of like fifth grade and being the last person picked every single time. Lord, bring us grace. May we boast in our weakness so the power of Christ will fall upon this podcast. Yeah. There it is. Seriously, though, right. man, sorry about that. Great to I be with you guys. That, that was gonna <laughs> that that was gonna touch your yeah. uh, fifth grade wound, which I recognize is real. We all have them. So, yeah, totally. Well, let me just start off with something I already read about. You train people to practice the way of Jesus. Let's just jump right in there. Yeah. What is the way of Jesus? Mm-hmm. I love that phrase. I love it too. I mean, it comes from Jesus Himself and the writers of the four Gospels, it's a bit uh, lost in translation. So often people don't realize how endemic that language is to the four Gospels. So the Greek word that's translated way is hadas, and it most literally means a road or a path, but it's a metaphor in kind of the literary imagination of the four Gospel writers and Rabbi Jesus for a kind of path of life, a road of life, a way of being, a way of living in God's kingdom. And so it's used a lot more than people realize in the four gospels. One, because it's sometimes translated way, sometimes translated road, sometimes translated path. For example, you know, in Jesus' teachings, enter by the narrow road and the narrow gate is sometimes translated narrow path. It's the same word. It's hadas, the narrow way. And then uh, it's often used in double entendre. So the gospel writers use it that way a lot. So there's a line about how the disciples followed Jesus on the road is how it reads in English. But they want you to hear the disciples followed Jesus on the way, way. both like the road going to the next village right. and 
they began to live his way of life. Or, you know, there's that famous line where there's the turn in the Gospel of John where Jesus begins to go on the road to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And that's a metaphor for what we would call cruciform spirituality. He begins to take the Philippians 2 kenosis journey of self-emptying, you know. So this language is used all over the four Gospels and all through, it's laced all through the teachings of Jesus himself for, um, and it's just a metaphor. And it's fascinating to me that the metaphor that Jesus goes back to, and he goes back to other metaphors, but one metaphor that he goes back to a lot of what discipleship is, is following a road or a path or a way of life. And I think I find that interesting just because I grew up pretty deep into the stream of the church that at the time was called evangelicalism. And that word doesn't means different things to different people now. But I grew up in a, that word meant something a bit more precise in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, in that framework, uh, we would have used the label Christianity, which is not a, a word used by Jesus or any of the new Testament writers. It doesn't make it bad, but it does make it questionable. And, you know, it was more akin to a belief system of theology and doctrine or to a moral system of kind of do's and don'ts and commands and thou shalt's and thou shalt not's, both of which are true to what Jesus' teachings are. But I think what's lost in that is, hey, to follow Jesus is not just to believe a set of ideas about God or life or yourself and the mental architecture of your mind, And it's not just to follow an abstract set of moral principles. It's far more embodied, far more relational, far more pragmatic, Mm -hmm. far more daily. It's that. And it's also a way of life. And I think we have so put the emphasis on upstairs and not downstairs on the kind of head part of the faith and not on the body part of the faith. I, I was chatting to this guy that did this kind of nonprofit that he called the Jesus Dojo. And uh, it's a very West, very West Coast thing. And I was like, bro, what's up with the, the name, the Jesus Dojo? And he just was so simple. He said, following Jesus is following a way of life. And he said, our, our churches, it's less, he said, it's, he said something like, it's less like learning chemistry or history or abstract mathematics and more like learning jujitsu or, you know, something that you do with your body. Yep. But our churches are set up more like university, Western-style university lecture halls than they are set up like dojos, where you go in a community of people with your body to learn how to do something with your body. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, everything Jesus is trying to get you to do is mostly stuff you do with your body. Mm. And so I just love to highlight this language that is not original to me, that goes to Jesus himself of the way of Jesus. Yeah. Mm. And personally, just in your story, you've begun to answer that question of, of um, kind of transitioning your, your own understanding of how you follow Jesus and, and just practicing the way for you personally. But so just how are you an, really enamored by Jesus in this season of your life? What, what is it? Where are you just present uh, to Jesus? And, and yeah, just kind of catch us up personally to where you are. As you've been writing about this, thinking about this book for 15 years, but what's, a, what's a captivating you these days about following the way of Jesus? You know, 
I think like you guys, I would love to nerd out on interpersonal <laughs> neurobiology and <laughs> theory and well, how, the, how does the mind emerge from the brain and yeah. how do our ideas of God correspond to the phenomenology of who God actually, you know, all, I love that stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think like many people, there's a greater and greater simplicity in my interaction with the Trinity, not a greater, there's hopefully a greater complexity in my thinking but a greater simplicity in my living. And so, you know, this morning, it's the same stuff. It's morning prayer. It's, you know, I started today. I'm in a really stressful season of life right now. Uh, we just moved. We're in home renovations on an old house. I'm starting an organization and releasing a book. I should do one of those four things at a time, <laughs> yeah, not totally. all four. I'm breaking all of my rules about eliminating hurry. Yeah, I was going to say you should and ruthlessly I know, eliminate hurry from your life. Oh my goodness, talk about talk about a shame position. <laughs> but um but so so all that to say, in my morning times, my brain is what my mind is so much more scattered than I would like. I'm so much more distracted. I I'm holding to my everything I talk about in that book. I'm yeah. holding to morning prayer. I'm yeah. practicing Sabbath. But my nervous system is just yeah. revved up, and so I'm a whole person. And <clears throat> so the other 23 hours of the day and six days of the week are just over the line. And that affects, <clears throat> you know, was it John Cassian who ever said, how you are outside of prayer is how you are inside of prayer. So if you want greater attunement to God in prayer, <clears throat> you know, most of us think I want to be more peaceful in life, so I'll have these moments of prayer and Sabbath. But the reverse is also true. If you want to be more in tune with God in moments of prayer and Sabbath, you have to slow down the whole pace of your life. You can't just go nuts the other 23 hours of the day. So it's a long way of saying my brain is way more distracted than I would like right now. My nervous system is, is way more off kilter. And still, there was a moment, it was much more fleeting this morning than I would have liked, where I just had a real sense of invitation from the Spirit to rest in God, a real sense. I was reminded in prayer, not even through reading, just I'm reading through Matthew right now, but I wasn't reading that portion of just when John leans back mm. onto Jesus' yeah. chest. And I just had this real sense of the peace of God at the center of the glassy sea in Revelation and leaning back onto his love and his peace and feeling this sense of life without nervous energy. I thought of like when you touch a tree, I'm kind of obsessed with trees. It's like, it's so still, it's not moving, but yet you can feel life in it. And what a beautiful picture for kind of how God is. Anyway, all that to say, that was just a couple of fleeting moments this morning. And honestly, that will probably be the highlight of my day. I mean, yeah. chatting to you guys is great. Yeah. But <laughs> It's not, not as good great. as the breast of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah. not to underwhelm you, but but I'm loving morning prayer. Mm. I'm loving keeping Sabbath. And I'm loving really deep relationships with um, one or two other people that I just deeply trust and can bear my Anamkara stuff. I can bear my soul to. And that's where I think it's just there's an increasing simplicity in my actual daily life with Jesus. It's just trying to slow down trying to pray, trying to be more grateful, keeping Sabbath, doing life deeply relationally. Tonight we'll have people around our table for Sabbath. That'll probably be the highlight of my week. You know, it's just the simple stuff. It doesn't cost money. It takes a little time. Doesn't You don't need a PhD in spiritual formation to figure it out. 
um, you know, I'm loving that. I love it, man. Well, that's really beautiful. I think uh, one of the things that I've always, hearing you talk about the way, you know, I mean, obviously the book of Acts s- starts to talk about people who are, you know, associated with this. Yeah, I mean, but before the church is called the church, it's called the way. Yeah, or followers right. yeah the, the way. primitive that's church the, is called the way. The name, and, yeah. Uh, but even before that, right, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, John 14, where Jesus is like, I'm going away. And, uh, yeah, I can't remember which one. Is it like uh, is it Andrew or Nathaniel? I can't remember who says, um, hey, where, we, we, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> like, <laughs> where are you going? We want to go, you know. And, uh, but, but Jesus says, well, you know the way. Um, to where I'm going. He's like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Right. And, you know, I, I just, in my mind's eye can just see, you know, Jesus there, the embodied uh, presence of God um, stand in front of his apprentices in front of his students and in an embodied way, uh, answer them and go, I, I am the way like, and you're so then I hear you talk about um, sitting with you know Jesus and leaning back against him and um, in a mystical way, right now, because the embodied Jesus is enthroned, um, but we have his spirit right who dwells in us and you and you just think about I mean I, there's all the richness of the the way is an embodied practice, but the way ultimately is an embodied person who you re, who you relate to, and so it doesn't surprise me at all, nor should it surprise anybody when someone says the best part of my day is is a dedicated time to sit and be with and listen to um, in a in a focused way, um, Jesus. Yeah, I think that's that's important to clarify that this metaphor of the way is not just saying that to follow Jesus is to adopt a certain choice architecture of habits that yeah. slow your life down to a more emotionally healthy pace. Um, yes, all of that, but that's all means. That's not end. Amen. End is to be relationally present to Jesus and to open up for him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and transform us into people of love. So. It's in the same way that the point of date night is not to keep the discipline of date night. It's to, you know, hopefully <laughs> to connect. create some space to totally. connect with a spouse, yep. you know? So morning prayer, I think, you know, all of the disciplines work along the same lines. So when we, when we talk about discipleship, um, one of the things I've always, uh, that's always fascinated me that I've kind of uh, had this ongoing uh, survey that I do when I go to different places but I'll try to put people together and just go, hey, what is discipleship? Um, and it's so interesting because you put 10 people in a room and maybe ask them individually, you're probably, I mean, there will be some continuity, but there will also be discontinuity around what, what this even is. Um, and then you're specifically a part of another kind of term uh, movement um, called spiritual formation. And so why don't you talk to our audience just a little bit about, like, how, how do you see those two things? Are those the same? Do you use them synonymously? Are they two parts of the same coin? Like, how, yeah, I'll just, I'll throw that softball at you and let you chat for a minute. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love that question. So, because um, people do use both of those terms 
in different ways. I mean, there's more, uh, I think, continuity around the meaning of the label spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. And there's little to no continuity about the meaning of the word yeah, discipleship. Totally. <laughs> we're all using this word and assuming that we're meaning the same thing. So I almost intentionally don't use the word discipleship, not because I don't love it, but because I think most people misunderstand it. So most people, most evangelicals, definition of discipleship has nothing to do with discipleship in the first century. For example, very few people recognize that Jesus did not invent discipleship. It existed before him and after him in the New Testament. There's evidence right in the New Testament itself, because Jesus was not the only rabbi to have disciples. You know, John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. Paul was previously a disciple of Gamaliel, a Jewish rabbi, before he became a disciple of Jesus. So what happens is when discipleship is torn out of its first century historical context, then people import modern day meanings into an ancient word, and that's where it gets misconstrued. So, you know, there are three popular, this is, this is maybe quite controversial, especially to people more in the South, but <laughs> three, um, this was actually in my book and everybody made me cut it out. They said it was too angsty and would offend too many people. And I was so <laughs> I'm sad. glad you're giving it to us now. Because <laughs> I felt like it was essential to put in the book, but at some point you have to listen when yeah, you're pretty much yeah, yeah, saying yeah. the same thing. You you're can like, say oh, it here gotta, though. I got to listen to you. But yeah, my editor's not here. My board's not here. I can say whatever I want. Let it fly, man. (laughs) But I had a a chapter in there that got cut out called Three Myths About Discipleship, where I identify what I think are the three most popular misunderstandings of discipleship. So one is discipleship means one-on-one mentorship. This is where disciple, and, and you'll notice, for example, modern day evangelicals use disciple as a verb not as a noun. It's never once used as a verb anywhere in the New Testament. So for example, people would say, hey, Chuck, you know, who are you discipling or who discipled you? That is, I mean, not, that's very bad grammar biblically. So, you know, for example, if you put a synonym in like that, nobody's asking you, hey, who are you Christianing? Or who are you believering? Or who are you sainting? Or who are you followering? You know, because <laughs> we're like, wait, Wait, what do you, what exactly do you mean like, by that? Things those are getting are nouns, weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> not verbs. Those are what people are. They're not something that we do to people. Yeah. Well, at least so, that made it into the introduction of your book. That part did. That part did. Yeah. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, disciple is a noun, not a verb is in your book. And that that made it into the book. Right. That, that was like, all right, yeah. we're on very yeah. solid biblical ground here. <laughs> <Okay>. But <laughs> But people will talk about discipling another person, and what they mean is one-on-one mentorship. So they tend to mean an older, wiser Christian will sit down with one or two or three or 12, you know, younger people and kind of mentor them, show them the ropes. Another um, common understanding would be what I would call leadership development. So this is like, hey, Jesus took 12 and uh, and uh, he spent his whole time with these 12 people and he raised them up and then he sent them out to carry on his work, right? And so that's what discipleship is. And if we would all do that, if every leader would just take 12 people and pour into those 12 leaders and then send them out, then da 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 Now, both of these are ignoring vast, yeah. huge problems major, with this interpretation. Yep, yep. For example, Jesus had dozens and dozens of disciples yep. and that confuses apostleship with mm-hmm. discipleship mm-hmm. and assumes that every disciple should become an apostle and a leader. And it's that was massive, I think, non-starter for me. The first misnomer 
you know, who you're discipling, it assumes all sorts of things that are wrong. One, it puts the mentor in the in the role of Jesus yes. rather than in the role of like Peter or Paul or the Apostle John. And so, like, just to clarify, we're we're <laughs> discipling under Jesus. Say we it are to him, bro. Jesus, Say not of Nathan him. or Chuck or so I'm yes. not discipling. People ask me who are you discipling? I'm like nobody. Roger uh, that. I do mentor a few people yep. with all sorts of caveats, but we are together following Jesus. Yes. He is our rabbi. He is the one we are discipling under. And then the third, you know, I think common misnomer is discipleship is in-depth Bible study. And th- this is probably one of the deepest ones in evangelicalism. I was chatting to a pastor yesterday who was lamenting, you know, he loves theology, went to Regent, had his life transformed. And he said, he's, and he's working hard to try to figure out how to bring that kind of good, robust kingdom theology to his church. But he said, people keep saying, you know, we need more discipleship at this church. But what they mean is we need more Bible studies. And because they're equating deeper discipleship with more in-depth Bible studies In, in people's mind, that's the same thing. And the problem with that, I'm obviously love scripture, love theology, believe deeply in the role of scripture in the renewal of the mind and the formation of the soul. Um, so this is not to discount any of that, but there's a great tragedy where evangelicalism, as you guys know, came out of kind of the Western enlightenment time in history and the enlightenment adopted this deeply unbiblical view of the human person as a kind of brain on legs, as an unembodied, non-emotional, non-relational, non-social, autonomous kind of brain out there. This is very much, this is built into American culture. The founding fathers, was it Benjamin Franklin when he said the purpose of the body is to carry the brain around? You know, that is not a Hebrew biblical Jesus view <laughs> person. That is an enlightenment and totally unscientific uh, and totally unbiblical view of the human person. So ironically, evangelicals often have a high view of the Bible and an unbiblical view of the human soul. And so what's happened in this kind of enlightenment world is evangelicalism is mostly built on the assumption, and this is true of most evangelical churches, that as a person's knowledge of the Bible increases, their spiritual maturity will increase along with it. And there are some colossal problems with that. One, you know, The problem is there's just enough truth in that early in the spiritual journey to keep the myth alive. Like when somebody is a brand new Christian and they're saved out, I live in LA, you know, the worldview of LA is not even close to the worldview of the Sermon on the Mount and the New Testament. So early in somebody's spiritual journey, learning more of what the Bible teaches about how to live and who God is, you're going to see a strong correlation between learning more of the Bible and becoming more like Jesus. But that correlation is mostly going to decrease over time as discipleship begins to touch on the deeper layers of the human soul. For example, in my, at my point, the major, you know, weak points in my life and character, uh, chronic perfectionism, being critical and uh, contemptuous at times toward my wife, shaming my kids, being anxious with my teenagers and behaving in controlling ways toward them as a dad. These are like may like anxiety that is like deeper, deep, deep in my nervous system to a traumatic event I had as a kid. These are like the major issues in my discipleship. And I am a thousand percent for an exegetical sermon series through the book of Romans, but it is probably not even going to touch any of those deeper problems yep, that I'm solving yep. for right now. 
And that's not because exegeting Romans is not important. It's because, man, whatever I need is, is, is probably not going to happen through more inductive Bible study. Not to mention all of your work, Nathan, you know, if we separate out um, implicit knowledge from explicit knowledge, you know, Bible study is doing explicit knowledge. So you might, you might go through Bible study and adopt a very orthodox biblical view of the Trinity, but on an implicit level, your body still thinks of God the way your body thinks of your dad or your authority figure or somebody that sexually abused you. So you might have perfect, you might have impeccable, explicit knowledge of God in your mind. If somebody were to ask you, what do you believe about God? But your body's knowledge of God might be so deeply warped, traumatized, wounded, deformed, that you are being now deformed and, and, you're, and you're keeping God at distance rather than coming close. So, well, and that's what, that's what uh, Bible study, people who, who deeply um, are deeply formed in Bible study— which I'm one of them. <clears throat> yeah, me too, um, and I'm grateful for it. Not, yeah, totally. Not it's such a gift, but when you make it, uh, it, it can very easily become the thing that you end up using to hide from God. Yeah. So, like, or, or I, I know you these just things. keep using it, and it keeps not working. Yeah, and then right. You but, but I mean, it. at the end of the day, like, you're— it's, it's, it's not something that is— uh, <laughs> when, it's, when it stops working— the answer is not, well, that didn't work. Let's maybe try something else. The answer is, no, just do more of it and maybe it'll work next time. Yes, it's like, that's it, the culture I grew up totally. in. Totally. Like, uh, it's like, hey, um, we're playing this song and people aren't really dancing anymore, so maybe we should play it louder and longer um, and maybe they'll start. And it's just like, man, there's such a, a deficiency there. And again, it gets back to, the foundational presuppositions about the human person and yes. who we are and how we're formed and how we're transformed. And, and what I'm hearing you say, which I'm like, dude, there's so, I mean, I'm like, I want to come through zoom and high five you and all these things. I'm just like, man, we, and now on to... zoom, you, you can at least give me a thumbs up. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's like the new update, bro. Give me a thumbs up. Come on. <laughs> but, but I'm just like, Hey, when we start to, when we, uh, shockingly, when you adopt a biblical anthropology and and view the whole person and address the the whole person um, from the sh- shockingly from the presupposition of um, God is love, then all of a sudden all kinds of doors of opportunity open for um, for healing, for restoration, for yeah wholeness. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there, dude, I have so many thoughts on that, but then my main question for you following that is why is that controversial? Like why? That's what I was going to say. I don't understand why somebody would tell you to take that out of your book. That that's the thing where I'm like, dude, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that needs to get said over and over again. I'm not trying to throw your editor, your board under the bus or anything, but I'm just like, man, I don't understand. (laughs) I just don't know. It's not controversial to us is what we're saying. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One you know, those misnomers live more inside of evangelical subculture than they do in the wider culture. And again, pastoring, you know, millennials and Gen Z on the West Coast of America, they're not growing up with as much of the evangelical baggage. They're growing up with the secular baggage, trauma, the fallout of divorce, growing up on social media, you know, 
they're growing up with all wor- way worse baggage, but it's it's the baggage of secular culture, yeah, right. not of evangelical misunderstandings of God and discipleship. So part of it's that, and part of it's just you know, if you start critiquing people that have a vested interest in a way, there is you're, you're probably not going to win them over to your side very quickly. And I want to win people over to a, a more yeah. ancient, more holistic, more relational embodied and emotional model of discipleship, yep. you know? And, and that's, I want to win people over to what discipleship is, which is a first century model of learning where students would gather around a rabbi or a teacher, not just to learn the theology of the Torah, but to learn how to be, how to live, how to do life together. They would do life together 24 seven, live together. They would walk together on a road and they would go through an apprenticeship program to not just learn ideas in their head, but to learn how to be a different kind of person and eventually learn how to be rabbis themselves and carry on their rabbi's work. And so that's where I, I want to kind of reintroduce a very simple but first century kind of the actual rubric of discipleship that Jesus is working under when he says to Peter and James and John, come and follow me or apprentice under me or become my disciple. He's not saying come and do one-on-one coffees with me every week and yeah. read the new book by John Mark Comer and we'll talk about it. Yeah. He's not saying come and do inductive Bible study Memorize with me every single day. Or, yeah. He's yeah. not saying come and be mentored by me. He's saying come and join my community and follow in a, sh- a training program of apprenticeship and in community be formed into a new kind of person to create a new kind of humanity. And so that's the discipleship that I'm wanting to get back to. So it makes sense, and I agree with, and that was well said, of why you shy away from using discipleship language, but you use formation language. Just really simply now for our audience, how do you personally uh, define the process of spiritual formation? Yeah, um, you know, spiritual formation in some sense is the process of discipleship. You know, it's the the inner architecture of what's how disciple, how we are transformed to be like Jesus. So I think the most, the simplest definition of formation is just the process by which our spirit, just meaning our inner woman or man, our inner kind of self, what uh, older generations called our character is formed into a particular shape. So, um, and there's disagreement here, but I like to distinguish between spiritual formation and spiritual formation in the way of Jesus. And what I, what I mean by that is I like to just say, listen, I don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist, you have a spirit, you have an inner sense of self and a person that is right now being formed. Mm -hmm. So people will occasionally say to me, you know, Oh, I'm getting into spiritual formation. And what they mean is like they're reading Dallas Willard or they're starting to practice contemplative like Dio Divina or they're keeping Sabbath or maybe they're in therapy. Wonderful things. I'm so for all those things. But a part of me wants just to say, no, listen, you've been, quote, into spiritual formation since you were in your mother's womb. You have been being spiritually formed by a complex interplay of factors, volitional and non-volitional, done to you, done by you, done around you since before you came out of your mother's womb everybody is into spiritual formation. Donald Trump is super into spiritual formation. Joe Biden, super into spiritual formation. I'm super, and my atheist neighbor is very into spiritual formation. We are all being spiritually formed. 
spiritually formed, you know, spiritual formation in the way of Jesus is how we intentionally organize our lives in such a way that we are, they are conducive to being spiritually formed to be like Jesus, expressed through our personality and gender and ethnicity and class and, you know, cultural background, all of that. Yeah. Love that. Just that Galatians 4 passage that Paul talks about formation, how he's in anguish, you know, like a yes. child birthing mother until Christ until is Christ. formed in you. It's just, yes. I'm enamored by that. That's, I mean, that's yeah. what the Spirit's up to, right? Forming Christ yes. in us. So, And it's, la- it's laboring, yeah. And that's the pastoral work. I mean, that's Paul's, you yeah. know. What a heart but. in anguish. So the... I attended online a year and a half ago your pastor's conference. Oh, okay. And you talked about, super motivating for me, the four waves here in North America of the spiritual formation movement. Yes. I've read other people about it. I've heard them talk about it. I think you were recounting a conversation with Alan Fadling, perhaps, about those three three waves and the need for the fourth. I'd love for you just to share that with our audience because— it super motivates everything we're doing here at Eden Project as well. Well, you should have Alan on to get it direct from the source. Uh, he's much better than me. But yes, other people, Keys Keesler, James Brian Smith, Steve Porter recently, all a little different, have kind of used some formulation uh, along these lines. And this is just a frame. So this is not capital T truth. And there, you could you could reframe it differently. But one way to frame the spiritual formation movement since its rebirth in the Western Protestant stream of the church, meaning it's nothing new. It's just quasi kind of a little bit new language in one particular stream of the church that the three of us all grew up in Um, is it comes of age. You know, most people timestamp it to the late seventies. Some people timestamp it to Bonhoeffer and his work cost of discipleship, Finkenwald, but most people, and then would see Willard and others later on as extrapolating out Bonhoeffer's work for the Western church. Um, that's interesting because that roots it more in the Reformation, in Germany, in kind of early evangelicalism. But most people would kind of timestamp it to 1977, the release of two books, basically The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster and The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. Those go together, you know. Uh, Willard was in Richard Foster's church plant, not far from where I live now in LA area. And Willard taught a Sunday school class. And, you know, Richard Foster as a young church planter would naturally sit in and nobody had ever heard of Dallas Willard, nobody outside of his classes, you know, nobody had ever heard of Richard Foster. And, um, and then Foster later writes this book, mostly based on Dallas's paradigms with full blessing. They're good friends. And so that's wave one is basically these two kind of books that if you look at American evangelicalism or just let's just say the American church come at a time where they are kind of a counterbalance to both the church growth movement, uh, which is based in Fuller Seminary. Like very few people realize this, you know, the stat is, and I don't know how accurate the stat is, but the stat is. That in the 1970s, there were only 10 churches over 2,000 people in the entire continental U.S. Now there are well over 1,200 and growing. So um, mega churches are nothing new. You read about one in Acts chapter 2 in some sense, depending on what you mean by mega church. But the resorting of the vast majority 
of Christians into a small minority of churches. Um, that is brand new, and I think is uh, is mostly celebrated uncritically by most pastors. And I think it should be we should probably have the opposite approach toward it. I think the large I don't think large churches are all bad, but I think as a general rule, the larger the church is, the more skeptical we should be of it as far as its fruitfulness and health. It doesn't make them all bad. I think they have a place and a role. But there's a huge generational thing that many American Christians don't even realize is giant. Like how people experience church today is not how most people experience church through church history. So that's wave one is these two books kind of come as a counterbalance to the church growth movement and arguably the shallow nature of discipleship and evangelicalism post-World War II, which is, again, it's mind-based. It's not holistic. It's not body-based. It has this view of the gospel that Bonhoeffer called cheap grace that doesn't call people to a very rigorous standard of discipleship. So that's wave one. Wave two is some nonprofits are created to gather people around this more holistic vision of discipleship and practices and contemplative spirituality. Renovari is the flagship, but there are others like the Transforming Center that Chuck is a part of. And then um, to kind of gather people together, beautiful, beautiful work to get people in spaces together in their bodies to begin to work this stuff out. Key insight here is they are basically all outside of the local church. They are run as nonprofits, as parachurch ministries, through academia, like uh, programs begin to start in seminaries, but they are pretty much all outside the local church. Wave three is some local churches adopt a spiritual formation staff member. And Alan said this to me, he said, it's very rare for this to happen. When it does happen, most of the time, it's just a rebrand of like the small groups pastor or the family life pastor. Yep. And every once in a blue moon, you actually have a church that has somebody on staff doing the work of formation. That may be leading retreats or giving spiritual direction or doing inner healing prayer or, you know, working with people's false images of God or teaching on the disciplines. But in those rare, rare occurrences where you have that person, and I think it's with every passing year, that's less rare. Most of the time it's on the periphery of the church, not at the center. And it doesn't actually change the model of how church is done. It's more like an optional thing off to the side for people that are interested in it. And so I asked Alan, I was like, bro, <laughs> where where's wave four yeah, where right. all these pastors woke up and realized, holy cow, the way we're doing church is not actually how church was done at the best moments of church history necessarily. And it's not conducive to a high level of spiritual yeah. transformation in the majority of its people. It's conducive to other good things, but not to forming people to a high degree of Christ-likeness. And if we want to take that as our new goal, we actually have to re-architect how church is done. And so where, where's like the fourth way where people are like reimagining like how we do church and how we do community and integrating this holistic model of discipleship into the fabric of churches? And Alan basically just said, yeah, it never happened. And apparently Willard on his deathbed, this is fourth hand, so who knows, but apparently said to a couple of his mentees that his greatest fear with the formation movement was that it would never make it into the local church. And his rationale was the only institution that will be around a thousand years from now is the church of Jesus, not Renovari or Practicing the Way or Eden Project. It's the church of Jesus. So this has to get into 
the fabric. So that's where our work is, is like, how do we integrate this into local churches? Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I knew what you were going to say. So thank you for saying it again. <laughs> and also, thank you. Um, even in your mission statement, make it super clear that it is the church of Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, and you want to serve the church. And we, we share that heart. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. so as a life purpose statement, yeah, if God would let me do my part uh, to ride that fourth wave, re-architecture, all that, it's super motivating for me. So yeah, thank I would you love for sharing and that. just to clarify, those first three waves are all they they all build on each other. Sure. So I'm very much for nonprofits doing yeah. cohorts and conferences yeah. and academic programs, and I write books on spiritual formation and right. do podcasts. I'm for all of that. I just think if we actually want to see systemic change, books, podcasts, academic programs, like it has to, you have to get into the, the fabric. Of how churches are actually set up. Well, for whatever it's worth, I mean, at least from our our perspective, I mean, some something's going on. <laughs> so, right. I mean, the Lord's the Lord's doing something, and it's a it's a privilege to be a part of. Um, yes, what, it's a privilege to be a part of whatever's going on. Um, I think that's one of the things as I think about those four waves. That I mean, nobody you know, could have predicted like, hey, it's going to look exactly like this, you know, um, which is that whole just dependence on the spirit. And and nobody could have predicted probably the phenomenon of President Trump and of COVID. And those two things have radically changed the landscape and, and mostly in, I think, bad ways. Like, I think it's massively denigrated the integrity of the church in America, but I'm not really a silver lining kind of personality, but one thing I love about it is I think a lot of stuff that was, quote, working in more the Bible Bell and more middle America as far as church models and discipleship is clearly no longer working. And so there are pastors, what I have seen in the last, even the last two years is where before maybe a church leader's default emotional relationship towards some of these ideas was one of hostility because it's really challenging the status quo. And it's often asking pastors to adopt new metrics for success and to actually work for smaller churches, not larger churches. Um, So you can understand why we're all human, why there'd be a hostility or fear, a sense of shame, even like, have I been doing it all wrong? Does that make me a bad person? Um, you know, and that shame goes deep in all of us. Now there's been such a stripping, pruning, tearing away over the last couple of years, um, really decimation of many churches. That The upside to that is now there's so many pastors and churches coming out of the ashes saying, all right, we're, we're open yeah, to things. They totally are. Yep. We're, we're living in reality now. Those old models are not working. They are not producing the level of transformation that we genuinely want to see. Yep. So let's look at new models. Yeah, you know? yeah let's reexamine. There is yeah. a fresh hunger for sure. And of course, the most um, uh, encouraging part is Jesus has always uh, been the head of his church. Yeah. And he's doing something if we just will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying yeah. to the churches. So he is the hero. But personally, I've been really looking forward to this book oh, that just sorry. came out. Practicing the way, I know that even in some of the promotional materials talk about a fresh vision for the church. And so it's perfect <laughs> for this fourth wave. So tell us the heart behind the book and this fresh vision of the church that you're articulating. Well, I mean, everything starts with our own pain, right? I mean, I 
I'm that poster child of so deeply grateful for the foundation that evangelicalism laid in my life. And, you know, I, I probably don't even realize how blessed I am, things that I just take for granted, you know, trust in scripture and a biblical worldview in some ways probably just assume, you know, way too much in my entitlement, spiritual entitlement. But um, I'm also a poster child of the gross limitations of that model. And I was listening to somebody the other day and she said she was telling her autobiography and how she kind of was introduced to the world of spiritual formation. And she said, I had come to the end of what the traditional evangelical, evangelical discipleship model had to offer. And I thought, I remember that moment in my life when it's like I came to the end and it had been moving me forward. And then once we began to get to certain layers of my brokenness where I was in need of healing and freedom and transformation, it was no yep. longer moving me ceiling. forward. Yep. Yep. Yeah, hit the ceiling, banging the head against the yep. concrete wall. Yep. And so, you know, I, <laughs> through pain, through the fail... and. And that, that's an acutely painful experience for any disciple of Jesus. It is exacerbated to the nth degree when you are a pastor. Right. Because I'm with you, you know, in that. I'm with you. Not, I'm with you there. You know what it's like, Chuck, right? Yeah. I mean, not only are you hitting this wall, but you're realizing, holy cow, I have a whole bunch of people coming behind me, and yeah. they're all about to smack their head against the same yeah. wall. Uh-oh. And then you start to feel like a hypocrite. You start to feel like I'm not smoking what I'm selling. Mm. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm starting to like make it sound better than it really is. And I'm promising people transformation and I can't even be kind to my wife and not lose my temper with my kids. You know, what in the world business do I have to talk about the kingdom of God? So, you know, that pain, oh, and, and I'm a firm believer that our vocational destiny is tied to our wounding and that, you know, that's part of how God deeply redeems our pain is he somehow fashions a calling out of it. And uh, so when I discovered this whole world of spiritual formation, which is just really Christian discipleship, just through a more holistic, you know, ancient biblical lens, um, transformed my life. Sadly, it did not fix me. And you could ask my wife about that. (laughs) I am much better than I was and still deeply broken. Um, It sadly is not a silver bullet, but man that feeling of getting unstuck and beginning to really grow again <laughs> was such, such a gift. And I just want that so badly for others. And so I, I love to read. I love to think. I love to go down the rabbit hole. But what I wanted to do was write a book that could kind of summarize and synthesize this whole body of thinking, teaching, writing, this whole world, Willard and many others, for the last kind of half of a century. And I wanted to see, could I try to like distill it down into one entry level book? I would hopefully still be interested, interesting to mature Christians, but would be especially helpful that could give people a different paradigm, you know, the concept of like a mental model, a different mental model than I'm now have converted to the religion of Christianity, or I now am trying to do the moral commands of the Bible that could give people a mental model of I am now an apprentice of Jesus, learning with him and from him how to be a new kind of human being in a new community called the kingdom of God. And if I could, you know, if I could pass on that mental model, that certainly does not come from me, uh, that goes back to Jesus and, and, and was passed down to me through Willard and many others, 
Um, and if I could put it into one book that people could kind of get this picture from, um, that churches could utilize as well, that, that was kind of my dream and intention with the book. I love it. So, so what do you hope, like if you could, if you could wave a wand and be like, Hey, this is what I'm trying to achieve with this. What, what, what's a metric for success for you with, with specifically with this book? I mean, um, what, what do you hope it achieves for the church? Maybe achieve is the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think about a book that I read in my late teens, early 20s, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And beautiful book, powerful book, written in, the legend has it, written in one train drive. He sat down in Chicago or something, started writing, and when he pulled into St. Louis, I think it was the next morning, he had a rough draft. So it was written in this like all night, you know, moment. And it's a powerful book. That book so deeply in interpersonal neurobiology language, it imprinted on my deep, some deep part of myself. And it really shaped my spirituality for the next decade of my life. This idea that to find God, you have to seek God. You have to go out. There's something about the seeking, the pursuit of God that is central to finding God. That that was a new idea for me that imprinted, de- I think it shaped my spirituality, which in turn shaped who I became as a person and really defined the next 10 years, the first 10 years of my adult spiritual journey in a good way. And um, I think my prayer from before I started the, the rough draft for this was, God, would you help me write something that could imprint on people's way of being with God in a good way, not in a harmful way, that at least would give them for a leg of their spiritual journey, a mental model, a paradigm of, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm living around these goals of be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he did. And then, you know, more broadly speaking, I would love to see a holistic, body-based, practice-driven, communal model of discipleship that is intentionally designed to slow your life down, not speed it up, become more normative in the American church, the American Christian experience. Whereas much of what's normative in American evangelicalism, it speeds your life up. It doesn't slow your life down. You know, Ruth Barton calls it Christian busyness. Mm -hmm. You get involved in a church and it often makes your life more stressful and busy. It does not help you and train you how to actually slow down, which I think is one of the major goals of our unique generational problems. And, And secondly, it's not holistic. It doesn't even a deal with the phone, with secularism, with false images of God, with emotional trauma, with attachment, with how to be in relationship coming out of most of us out of divorced homes, not me personally, but most people now. And that, that will actually like touch on all, not fix all of this. We're not, yep. we're not yep. widgets that can be fixed by the right discipleship strategy. Unfortunately, the human soul is so much more complex and beautiful than that. Mm-hmm. But I would love to at least have this way of following Jesus that that at least could get us farther down the path. Yeah. Well, man, what you're talking about, especially with the reimagining, right? I think it was uh, Bobette Buster um, or uh, someone who said it's it's one thing to like it's one thing to convert somebody's thinking, like their their cognitive. You know, you 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 propose something and they're like, I agree with that, right? But it's a whole other thing to convert their imagination. 
and so much of who we are is imaginative. We, we live in a world of images. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, hey, there are, um, there are a big part of this holistic discipleship is uh, replacing old, worn-out images uh, with a yeah. new way of being. And, and bro, you're—yeah, um, we're super grateful for your ministry because, you know, I've, we're, <laughs> we're locking arms <laughs> as sure. ministries to go, hey, let's— Let's do that. Let's go there. So, Chuck, well, final I'm word. So, so grateful for the work you're doing, guys. Yeah. Just incredibly grateful. And mm-hmm. well, thank you for this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for your time and your investment. And um, yeah, to our audience, just tell you, yeah, read the book. Let's talk about the book. <laughs> let's live the book. So, yeah. I mean, let's be with Jesus, right, and become like Him and do as He did. So, um, that's all for now. John Mark, may God bless you. May his face forever shine upon you and you mm. give you grace. So thanks, brother. Yeah, Thank grateful, you. brother. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Pace and Practice podcast. If anything in this podcast today encouraged you, repeat your curiosity. Share with your friends. Give us a rating. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And now as we depart, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.